Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I almost by default said Leviticus. No, (laughs) Philippians. On his well-known book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis speaks to counting the cost of following Christ. And he speaks to this by way of an illustration of getting toothaches as a child. And he recounts it this way. He said, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something that would deaden the pain for that night and would let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt that she would give me aspirin, but I knew she would do something else. Take me to the dentist the next morning. My apologies, Lisa. He says, I could, not, I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from my pain, but I could not get it without having all my teeth fiddled with by those dentists who would not let sleeping dogs lie. But if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. So Lewis's point here is that when Christ enters our life, we don't get to dictate the terms, but it's a package deal. Gaining Christ, gaining eternity comes with the way of the cross, comes with take up your cross daily and follow me. It's this reality that we want to explore this morning as we consider Philippians chapter 2, particularly verses 12 through 18. So please turn your attention to these verses this morning. Let's refresh ourselves of where we are in the book of Philippians as we've been studying through this book over the past several weeks. We find ourselves in the midst of Paul's instructions to his beloved brothers and sisters, the Philippians. And even though Paul has some pretty rough memories from his first experiences in the town of Philippi, from probably 10 years ago or so, and these persecutions and the treatment he received are detailed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but but even in spite of this, his letter echoes this tone of unmistakable joy, even from a prison cell as he writes in Rome. And the psychology of Paul here is startling, isn't it? The more he goes through persecution, physical danger, preachers who preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and on and on, the deeper it seems his own personal love for the gospel and the stronger his optimism about the glories of the life to come. So who were these Philippians? They were a group of faithful, benevolent, thoughtful, sacrificial believers who loved Paul deeply. And by this, or we know that Paul will express his gratitude for their gracious financial support and their kindness, and even sending Epaphroditus, who risked his own life for Paul in the work of the gospel. So we don't know exactly how much time has elapsed exactly since Paul first met Lydia and saw the church formed there in Philippi, but it's clear that the Philippians had not forgotten about him. That was clear. Because years later, they're still praying and they're still supporting him in gospel ministry. What is also clear is that the ongoing, wearing levels of persecution were getting really, really tough. And the Philippians were somewhat turning inward on each other. And there was some 
friendly fire going on among friends and confidants that ought to be on the same side. Paul is concerned about the splintering of the unity of the church at Philippi. So in an effort to reunify the Philippians, Paul centers his entire letter around a hymn. That's at the beginning of chapter 2, the text we read and heard last week. This hymn magnifies the gospel story, and in particular, the obedience of Jesus to obey the Father's sovereign will. In just a few short verses, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, Paul tells us of Jesus' humility in leaving the comforts of heaven to live a life as a servant, to humbly die on the cross, but that wasn't the end. But God raised Jesus, gave Him a name that was above every name, and has exalted Him in such a way that every knee will bow, admitting the universal lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. And this was no rabbit trail of Paul. He's not just talking about a little thing that he likes to talk about, good though it might be, the gospel. This is his strategy. By so exalting the risen Christ, it puts in perspective the petty, small, fire that's going on when we think about life together under the lordship of King Jesus. It puts it in perspective. And sitting on either side of this beautiful Christ-centered hymn in chapter 2 is Paul's prelude, we might say, and his postlude, we could say. In verse 27 of chapter 1, we read, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He reminds them that it has been granted to them, it has been granted, it has been gifted to them to not simply believe intellectual agreement here, but also the gift of what? Suffering for the sake of of Christ's name. And this is just the beginning of normal Christian living. Paul's postlude then echoes this very same idea on the other side of this Christ hymn in, in verses 5 through 11. And this begins our text for the morning in verse 12. So we might say Paul is recapping what genuine normal Christian living looks like within the family of God. When brothers and sisters are together fixing their minds upon the common love for the gospel. So let's read together verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So by using this clear connector word like, therefore, Paul wants us to see how clearly he's continuing his flow of thought here. In other words, the gospel has everything to do with your church struggles, with your personal struggles, big and small. And yet, notice the gentle way in which he addresses them. Beloved, my dear friends, as perhaps some translations have it. Before he delivers some weighty thoughts, he assures them of his love. Pretty good strategy as a good parent, a good teacher, a good mentor, a good coach. Assure the person that you're in their corner. You love them deeply. 
and then say, by the way, your whole life needs to change. <laughs> by the way, I love you, but this is a mess. You know, this test score is abysmal, but I love you so much. And you're, you're so much able to accomplish so much more than that. He assures them of his love. Prepare your minds here for a moment to be twisted and turned about. Only for me to tell you in a little while that God has all the answers. I don't, and we can rest in that. But I want us to wrestle with some of the reason why this text is notorious for confusing Christians in every era. It's hard. If a couple questions rise to the surface, if we were sitting down to have a Bible study and to pick apart this passage, there'd, there'd be at least a couple questions that we'd right out of the gates want to address. First of all, what does it mean to work out salvation? To work salvation? What does that mean? Emphasis on the working out. What does that mean? And then, secondly, how is it even possible that salvation is something that can be worked out. These questions plague our thoughts. Well, what are, what are some possible solutions that have been put forward? Well, every time Paul uses this verb, work out in the New Testament, it, it carries with it the idea of performing or producing or accomplishing something, carrying something out. So the face value, isolated without a context, sort of reading of verse 12, that word in particular, is that we are to perform salvation with fear and trembling. So is this just one of the few verses that we have to sheepishly shrug our shoulders and say, ah, I guess the Roman Catholics and the Mormons and, and others, this is just one of their you know, go-to verses and, and we got to steer them elsewhere? Do we have to do that? I actually recall a real conversation with a Mormon friend of mine growing up and he was so excited that he didn't have to turn to the Book of Mormon and Pearl of all their books, and then to make his point there, he was, I found one, and he read me this verse. Is that the solution we have to kind of settle with? Well, others try to offload the tension in this text by saying Paul's not even talking about individual salvation. He's talking about everyone's salvation in a generic corporate sense. But how in the world do you talk about everyone's salvation if not at some level you're talking about individual, particular salvation. not sure I'll ever understand that view. Some even translate the verse, obediently work to achieve spiritual health. Sort of a psychologized take on, on it. But this just isn't what verse 12 says. So what's critical to grasp if we're to rightly understand this tough verse is how the New Testament as a whole uses the word salvation. This is really important. In our modern popular Christian usage of the term, we almost exclusively think of it in the terms of uh, when did you get saved? Or, uh, you know, I prayed to receive salvation. And what do we think of? And it's appropriate. It's right. We think of a moment in time. We think of the moment when justification took place and we were made right with God. This is perfectly fine, but the New Testament often conceives of salvation from all angles, past, present, and future. And it uses the same word, but in all these contexts. So we have to ask ourselves, what is being, how is it being used here? 
So for example, Paul commends the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 for demonstrating a repentance that leads to salvation. Aren't they already believers that he's speaking to? Isn't salvation in the rearview mirror? Well, yes, but maybe not in, in every possible sense. Paul then states one chapter earlier in, in 2 Corinthians, Behold, now is the day of salvation. A very present aspect to the same word. Well, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he tells them to awake from their spiritual lethargy and, and walking in purity and resisting sinful behavior because of what? Salvation is nearer than the day you first believed. Well, I thought the day I first believed was salvation. Well, it is, but not in every sense. Now, what this tells us is that my participation in my salvation is absolutely necessary. Now, that should cause some you know, hairs to stand up. Now, I don't like the way that's phrased. But, in a certain sense, in the sense that verse 13 clarifies. We can thank Paul and, of course, the Holy Spirit that verse 13 exists. It's almost those two trees that have fallen in the forest and, and they're keeping each other up by the pressure that's against both of them. We need them both in this situation together to understand the point. And as much as we might wish that verse 13 and 12 were maybe reversed to, to save us some confusion and possible heart attacks. That's not the way that God wanted to say it. And so we read in verse 13 the completion of Paul's thoughts. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So taken together, we gain this from verses 12 and 13. Because God has powerfully worked in us, enabling both our desires and our actions for His own pleasure, we must work to bring salvation to completion in our lives. So to summarize, how is this working out done? Well, what does the text say? With fear and trembling. That is to say, with this sobered reality of, of the humility involved in recognizing the daunting, life-altering call before us. It's as we, we might think of images like World War II and soldiers preparing for D-Day whose minds were anxious and overly vigilant, but still sharp and ready to do battle against the enemy. We also are called to walk circumspectly, seeking to avoid being blindsided by Satan's tactics. And what exactly is the motivation then for our work? Well, it is God's good pleasure to please His heart and to so live that He might smile upon us as His children. Paul is so proud of his beloved Philippians. He really loves them a lot. He wants them to obey Jesus just as faithfully as when he was with them in person. And so he firmly tells them that they must expend great energy to work out the good work that God is doing to bring completion to their spiritual lives. This is the idea, work to bring salvation to completion in their lives. 
Don't kick back in laziness or shrink back in fear, but keep pushing the ball down the field spiritually, so to speak, never forgetting to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, our perfect example of obedience, as He's just let us out from meditating on in the verses previous. So how then do we participate in working out, living out salvation in our lives? Well, perhaps a short illustration might help. Imagine with me this this story, this scenario for a moment, okay? It's 1942, and you're all in high school, all right? Now, one of the major football powerhouse schools in the state. Now, you love football, and you're far and away the best athlete in the school, best athlete the school's ever seen. But your father won't let you play ball because like most teenagers, current day, we've just entered the war and the whole nation is rallying around getting jobs, working, doing everything we can to defeat the Nazis. I mean, there's just a, a way of thinking that we haven't experienced in, in, since then probably. And so that, it's just, that's, a, that's a frivolous luxury. We're not going to play sports. You've got to get a job. You've got to work. Deeply disappointed. Well, one night, your father walks into the room and he says, you know what, I've thought about this thing. I want you to play football next season, son. You're overjoyed. You can't believe it. So next season comes around, and just as the first game is about to begin, and the coach sends you and your teammates onto the field, you decide to grab a cup of water, sit down on the bench, and just take it in. You can't believe it. And all of a sudden, you hear a voice behind you, and it's, it's your dad calling from the stands. And he's saying, what are you doing? Get in there. Your teammates are like, what's he doing? The coach is like, what are you doing? Everybody. And you are just, it's as if you've, you've reached the peak of life. And you're like, what more is there to do? I'm a football player. This is what I always wanted. I'm on the team. I've reached it. There's nothing better. Okay. You show you've received your father's gift by actually playing the game, by actually getting in there, getting on the field, sweating, exerting, pouring yourself into this task. That shows you've accepted the father's gift to be able to do that. His gift was not to give you the opportunity to sit down and and to watch your teammates do it. That's not the goal of it at all. You were hardwired to do something different. And yet how foolish it is for the Christian who's been given the privilege to be part of God's family through the gospel, only to tell the Father that you're only here for the milk and cookies, so to speak. I'm not interested in actually like doing the Christian life, FYI. That's, that's not what I'm here Imagine how that would go for the new employee hired to perform a role in a company who hangs out in the snack room raving about the free coffee and donuts eight hours a day. How's that going to go? Not well. We show we've received the free gift of salvation in the gospel as we expend ourselves, pouring ourselves out because we love Christ and we believe we were made to do that. How amazing it is to think that we were called to work our tails off, to add to our faith Christian virtues, 
and fruits, as Dave read just a few minutes ago from 2 Peter 1. And yet all the while we do this, we know that God is the sole energizer, the exclusive source of all this expending of energy. God has done it all. And not only is He working in us to actually affect the behavioral changes in our obedience that that others can maybe outwardly observe, but He's changing our desires from within as well. What does the text say? Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So as we pour our hearts out in gospel-motivated ministry, God is changing us, both in our spiritual physique, we might say, and in our inward desires of our heart. God isn't simply about you going through the right outward motions. He knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And He's after transforming you even on that level. This is the powerful promise of God to us in this passage. Now, a popular maybe misunderstanding of this current mentality is that we wait to do any good deed until we're 100% free of any false motivations. And I would press against that and say, you know, if you have a mentality that says, I'm never going to sing in the choir, be a greeter, serve uh, in children's ministry, teach a class, do this or that until I'm completely free of a false motive. And God's got to change that before I can ever do. I would encourage you not to underestimate the discipline of the, and the gift of the routine of it. That as you take that one step after the next, God is working in you constantly, changing your desires as you obey Him one moment after the next. So after Paul gives these sobering but fairly general words of exhortation in verses 12 and 13, he gets even more specific with what this looks like in verses 14 through 16. So let's read these now. He writes in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." So for all of you practical thinkers out there who refuse to stay in the clouds staring at abstract ideas and you're just begging Paul with a question like, so come on, what does it really look like practically to work out salvation in my life? Let's consider each phrase now that he gives us. So for starters, to answer that question, working out our salvation means we think about our speech we think about it. One of the chief ways that we can discredit the power of the gospel in our lives is to grumble and dispute and to complain about things that otherwise we ought to maybe accept with humble thanksgiving, that this is God's will for me at this moment. I wonder, are you maybe a contentious person, a grumbler, a default kind of That's where you go when life doesn't go your way. And maybe you're sort of a contentious person who's convinced yourself that you're just the kind of person who has opinions, and everyone else just got to learn to live with it. That's sort of your MO, your, your identity. Do you relish the opportunity to pick apart some 
particular ministry because the leadership decided to use this curriculum or to not go with this idea about this, this decision? Or do you, do you only see situations for how they might affect you personally and no one else? What well, seems pretty clear in verse 15 that Paul's paraphrasing Moses' words at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. As Moses writes a song that lasts three whole chapters, that he's singing with sort of this realistic pessimism that if Israel follows suit to the way that they've been living, he's not, he says throughout, do this, but I'm not so sure you're going to do it. And he says in chapter 32, he says this, they, Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So essentially, by quoting or paraphrasing Moses here, Paul is saying, learn from Israel's example. The Lord hates grumbling and complaining because it reflects a heart that doesn't trust Him and what He's up to in our lives. So it would seem that Paul envisions great progress being made in the Philippians community, their, their church, if grumbling and complaining and endless dif- disputes were diffused among them. So by guarding the meditations of their hearts, which ought to then mean they'll be guarding their speech, because every word we say comes from the meditations of our heart, the Philippians demonstrate a a blameless innocence that strikes a bright contrast against the generation and the day and age in which they live. As Paul puts it, the crooked and twisted generation all around them. The speech of God's children is fundamentally different than this crooked and twisted generation that we live in. In your place of work, I'm sure you know the normality of grumbling over bosses, work policies, inconvenient meetings, unrealistic expectations, not good enough benefits, long hours, all that. Not to mention conversations around the water cooler about personal things like a nagging spouse or an awful neighbor or a poor teacher, a bad coach for their kid. As our memory verse for this week in Ephesians 4 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Might be pretty normal for those who aren't God's children, but for God's children, let no corrupting talk come out of their mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This is the language that God's children speak, even when it's words of critique or exhortation that bear significant weight, that might even hurt. They still give life, and they build up. That's the kind of speech that characterizes God's family. So as we work out salvation in our lives by means of thanksgiving and blessing and encouragement and life-giving speech, what does that do? It quells controversy within the family of God. And what's the effect? We shine as lights to those outside the family of God. It does something both internally and externally. It, it, It exalts Christ, so as we're looking at Him, our petty things become put in perspective, and then it causes us to radiate 
the life-transforming power of the gospel. We can't help but be reminded in that phrase of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put, uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. That's what we're talking about. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Note how it's our good works. It is good works that cause us to shine as lights into a dark world. So Jesus and Paul are telling us this. Your good works, brother or sister, are so significant to our gospel witness. But continuing Paul's flow of thought in Philippians 2, what is the means by which we shine? Verse 16, by holding fast to the word of life. For Paul, to hold fast to the word of life is to cling with all you've got to the good news of the gospel. I recently spoke with an unbelieving religious friend who attends and has attended for decades a church in the area. And because I know some of this church's history, I know that for decades there has been a continual one doctrine after the next bartering away of authentic Christian theology, really the gospel, in an effort to draw new, younger seekers who will be the next generation of this particular church. And now the church finds itself in a position where the gospel is clearly not preached. I think that church probably wanted to shine as a light, but the means by which they went about it is completely opposite of what Paul says here. Our Christian witness is at its strongest when we are lovingly yet fervently holding fast to the purity of the gospel, the word of life. It's not ours to change. We simply get the privilege to relay God's message. So with the last phrase of verse 16 and now continuing into verses 17 and 18, Paul begins to be a little bit more personal. So Paul's prayer is that the Philippians will hold fast to the gospel, as he says here, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So, now what's going on here? Is Paul just trying to pad his stats a little bit? Is he just a, a shrewd investor wanting to make sure his investments produce some good results? Or is he emotionally manipulating the Philippians so that they'll only work out their salvation so he feels better at the end of the day and not for God? No. Then why does it sound so self-centered to us here? Well, it's obvious he's arguing from a personal standpoint. But it is anything but selfishness that's motivating the apostles' words. Love pours from Paul's pen. Like in an emotional uh, his emotional outpouring to even the churches of Galatia. He likens his desire to see Christ formed in them. And he knows the, the opposition that they're receiving. And he likens it to childbirth. That's how I feel about this. I want to see Christ formed in you. The gospel take root so deeply that it feels like childbirth. Of course, not that he knows what it's like, but that's his description. 
He aches at the thought of disunity and false doctrine splintering the church of Christ. And yet, for as much as Paul labors to this end, he knows something at the end of the day. He will stand alone before Christ's throne and give an account of his life. At the end of the day, I can't control everything. There's a settled peace in knowing that. Parents, you may read blogs all day long. You may go to every possible parenting conference. You may just pour it out there to push every right button when it comes to parenting. And it's conceivable that your child could grow up to be a God-hating individual. I mean, oh, how that would grieve our hearts. Oh, how it grieves some of your hearts. But what is your settled peace at the end of the day? You will stand before Christ alone. Give account of yourself. You can't push all the right buttons that automatically bring the results that you want, even if they're good, God-magnifying sort of desires. I think this is what Paul has in mind. He's laboring to be faithful to Christ, knowing, though, that his heart and soul is wrapped up in the spiritual formation and progress of the church at Philippi. In verses 17 and 18, we read, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So hearing the cries and the sickly coughs of fellow prisoners along with the cruel dehumanizing cheers and scoffs from the prison guards, no doubt, Paul's joy cannot be stopped. He says, listen, even if I don't make it out of this place alive and I'm poured out as a drink offering, not for myself, but for you, I'm glad and I can rejoice Oh, and you should rejoice with me. Don't feel bad. <laughs> you should be glad and rejoice with me, he says in verse 18. So with joy, Paul is willing to become a sacrifice, if necessary, for the spiritual good of the Philippians. Brothers and sisters, sermons like this one, talking about expending ourselves and pouring ourselves out, not giving into laziness when it comes to disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. These may feel like, oh, I don't like those kind of sermons as much. Eh, I'd rather hear the stuff about grace where I don't have to do things. That's not the atmosphere that Paul has in mind, though. Why is it that this, this text is bookended with joy? Apparently, knowing the serious call to work salvation out in our lives, to guard our speech, to remain pure in an impure world, to shine as lights in dark places, to hold fast to the gospel even to the point of death, and all of this is the road to true joy. Why? Because better is one day in God's courts and His house than thousands elsewhere. The doorkeeper job in the house of God is way better than the tents of the wicked forever. True satisfaction, true joy, true pure pleasure. These are not items that are sold on the shelves of the wicked. They don't have them. They don't own them. 
A long time ago, I purchased a pair of Jordan basketball shoes. Shoes that should normally sell for over $200. I thought I found a deal. A high school kid told me a website where I could buy them for $50. So, when they arrived from China, I might add, and they looked completely legitimate, but they were not. As soon as I actually tried to play basketball in them, they felt like ice skates. I could get no traction. This was on concrete, too. And I knew something was not right about these. They had zero grip. <clears throat> and they absolutely chewed up my feet. I ended up giving them away. What I learned was that some factories in China illegally obtained the blueprints of these same shoes and produced them with cheaper materials during off hours and sell them for a quarter of the price to people like me. This is what our world sells when it comes to joy. What they offer catches the eye. It parades itself like it's true satisfaction and joy. It even provides short-term quick pleasure, but in reality, it's fake. It's all fake. It will always disappoint the heart of every genuine believer. The passage we have examined this morning is undeniably for the Christian community. It's who Paul has in mind. But it sure wouldn't surprise me one bit if God's Spirit is opening eyes this morning to see the bankruptcy of life apart from Christ. Perhaps you read these verses and you know that you're not a blameless, innocent child of God experiencing the God-given power to fight the sins that rage within your soul. And if that's you, please don't hear this passage as an encouragement to work hard so that God might accept you. That would be to miss entirely the point of these verses. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he tells them, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. This is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. If you are not first connected to Jesus by grace alone, through faith, not your own works, that's step one. Even this morning, our prayer as a church family would be that you would humbly confess that you've lived a life like every one of us before coming to Christ, captured by empty promises. Empty promises such as money and sex and power and comfort and success and on and on the idols of our culture go. Repent of worshiping these idols as if they were your master and turn in trust and faith to Jesus. He is the one who came to rescue sinners like you and I. Would your heart be warmed toward even the idea of repentance this morning? And there are certainly others hearing this passage and realizing maybe for the first time that you're kind of like that football player or that person who spends eight hour a days in the snack room. You just want to kind of say that you're in the club and, and you just kind of want to have all the benefits without knowing anything of the true joy of laying our lives down and following Christ and living out, working salvation out, bringing it to completion in our lives. As the entire New Testament makes abundantly clear, Christians are marked by lives of obedience to Jesus. And those utterly disinterested in exerting any effort in their Christian life are either not genuinely converted 
or, as Peter puts it, are so nearsighted that they are blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their sins. I've been horribly nearsighted since about the third grade. I know what nearsighted's like. You just can't see stuff. It's all a blur. Is this you spiritually? Can you just, have you just forgotten the glories of the gospel and the call and the claim of the gospel upon your life? Perhaps the spiritual disciplines, habits of grace, as some refer to them, have always struck you as legalism. To have a routine for prayer, scripture memory, Bible reading, evangelism, church attendance, church ministry, personal worship, all that has always sounded coerced and forced. And so you've opted for more of a free-floating and, you know, approach. My guess is that this approach hasn't produced the spiritual vitality in your heart that you maybe hoped for. But we're not left without knowing where to go. Remember, the entire context of this passage is community-oriented. Paul relates nearly every point in the whole book of Philippians to their unity in the gospel. Use the church, brothers and sisters. Use the family of God as an aid in your spiritual progress. That's what we're going to do in the hour to come. We're going to get together and talk about these verses so we can be spurred on in our love for Jesus. Ask other brothers and sisters to hold you up in prayer, to hold you accountable as you seek to be more purposeful in your walk with God. Simply attend church functions and watch how the sovereign Lord who loves you and loves your spiritual progress will bring conversations before, after a service, in the parking lot, things that you, didn't, you couldn't plan for. But what you could plan for is, i got to get my body here. If I can do that much, God will meet me with His grace. That happens every single Sunday. And we can't report on it because there's too much of it. But it's happening. Use this gift to God's people. Believers know that the limitless power of God is powerfully working within you as you take one step of obedience after another in an effort to, to work out salvation that's been secured for you and exclusively by Jesus Christ. Guard your hearts, guard your tongues, shine as lights, hold fast to the word of life, and make sure you rejoice, knowing that no matter what comes your way, God will complete the work that He has begun in you for His own glory, for his own pleasure. Now, let's get to work. Let's get to work as his people, knowing that we've been given the privilege to labor in his fields for the sake of his name. Let's pray together. Lord, to be a member of your family is not for freeloaders that want to show up and take advantage of you. You will not be so abused in that way. Father, the costly grace of Christ is worth us laying our lives down in full surrender, full obedience, full acknowledgement of your lordship and control. We are not little gods unto ourselves, pushing all the right buttons and controlling, pulling all the strings and, and 
remaining in a position of authority. You are the Lord of all. You are sovereign over all. Help us to just be obedient to bringing salvation to thorough completion in our lives as we obey you one step after another. Lord, guard, guard us by your grace. Guard our tongues, how we speak about one another, to one another. Help us to be doggedly committed to maintaining doctrinal purity, but never at the expense of love and never at the expense of leading to a a cognitive pride in our hearts. Oh God, help us as just pathetic, chronically sinful strugglers in this world to lean hard upon your grace, lean hard upon the weighty call to work out salvation, but to know that it is you all the while working powerfully within us, both the desires and the obedience. I pray, Lord, that you would even use the conversations that will take place in homes across our city in the few hours to come to glorify yourself as the Spirit of God applies these words to our hearts. Thank you for the gospel. Give us grace to live in light of it. Amen. Please stand with me and let's consider together for a few moments what we've heard preached. Examine your own heart. Are you working out your salvation? Are you confident in your salvation? There's lots of questions that we should be asking and careful work we should be doing. So let's begin that now together in silence in the quietness of our own heart. Father, we were a bunch of sinners. We are not fully mature. We've not yet reached the goal. But help us by your grace to make every effort to take hold of the goal, all the while realizing and knowing that we can only take hold of the goal because you have taken hold of us by Christ. May that truth grow and grow in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for taking hold of us and for holding us fast. Amen. Let's sing together of this precious promise.
We welcome this morning all of you who may be visiting with us. If today's your first Sunday here or second or third, if you're new, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here. We'd be happy to meet you. We'd hope to be able to do that and talk with you before you go, but thank you for coming. And we hope that you heard and saw and have experienced this morning the gospel of Christ and the hope we have in him in all areas of our life. Please grab a bulletin before you leave if you don't have one already. 